0: I in cosmology, uh, the map, the temperature and isotropy map of the CMB with with the equations that describe it, you know, it's it's really because in order to, first of all, we share this with everyone in the universe, right? This is just our universe. And in that map, it's all of our physics that we figured and also what we haven't figured. Einstein relativity, the black body radiation that photons, that light is particle and wave, that electrons, the atomic theory, quantum field theory to understand the the two and three point functions, all the statistics.
1: Welcome, everybody, to an exciting episode of the Into the Impossible podcast, featuring yours truly, Brian Keating, in conversation with a exceptional mind, a mind who is curious and passionate about the orthodoxy, or maybe the unorthodoxy, of what has become the standard lore in cosmology. And that's Dr. Anna Aegis of NYU. She's a brilliant theoretician who studies the early universe, cosmological models. She's extremely conversant in what we would consider maybe the standard model of cosmology, so-called Lambda CDM, uh, with inflation layered on top. but. She is one of a new breed of scientists who's not content to merely look at what exists and take it as given. She is instead coming up with new models, new ideas, and new theories in collaboration with some of our past guests on the Into the Impossible podcast, including Paul Steinhardt and upcoming guest, Neil Turok, who is the Higgs Professor of Physics at the Edinburgh University where Peter Higgs is. and. Stay tuned for a biography of Peter Higgs by Frank Close. Uh, Wonderful biography, Uh, that episode is upcoming. But today's episode features new approaches on cosmology and how we can understand what the early universe was like, maybe without inflation being a required ingredient. And I find that fascinating. And we as scientists should be dispassionate. We shouldn't have a prejudice as to how the universe actually began. So understanding how the universe began is perhaps the most important uh, thing you can do, according to me, at least. And we're trying to do that on the experimental side with the Simons Observatory. But we should be dispassionate and guided not by prejudice as to how the universe actually began. uh, Just because a preponderance of uh, eminent scientists have bequeathed that to us sort of an inheritance. Some of the proponents from Alan Guth, uh, Andre Linde, and others, including Paul Steinhardt and his collaborator, uh, they you know have had an evolution in their views on inflation uh, over the last 42 years since Alan came up with the idea. As a struggling young postdoc at Slack. Uh, but for now, you know, we really have to accept the fact that while many people believe inflation took place uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt, we don't actually have physical evidence. And it may be, it may just be that we never do get physical evidence. That could mean that inflation didn't happen, or it could mean another type of inflationary mechanism that occurred at energy scales too small for us to see with cosmic microwave background experiments like the uh, Simons Observatory, Simons Array, South Pole Telescope, BICEP, et cetera. And those will just be inadequate to measure any signatures of inflation, which honest to goodness did take place, but we will never know it. So it's important to let many flowers bloom. And in this conversation, we look at the viewpoint of a practicing cosmologist who has to understand the orthodoxy, but is not afraid to be a maverick and to explore things that are not among the orthodoxy, the unorthodox approach to cosmology. So I think you're going to enjoy her perspective. She's a wonderful teacher. She's a scholar. And uh, I found it a delight. And I'm so glad uh, to present this conversation by popular demand, Dr. Anna Aegis. Enjoy going into the impossible. Any
0: sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors, please help.
1: Welcome, everybody. It is not frequent that I get to talk to not only an eminent cosmologist, but someone who's also a friend and a very deep and critical thinker. Uh, and that is Dr. Anna Aegis, who is joining us all the way across the country, I believe. Anna, where are you joining us from today?
0: Right now from the New York area.
1: New York, where I got my mm-hmm. personal Big Bang began uh, 50 years ago in New York uh, State. And uh, it's a delight to talk to you. Thank you for mm-hmm. uh, agreeing to come on the podcast.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: You know, I'm teaching cosmology this quarter, and uh, it's an undergraduate course. And we always conclude with the most interesting thing, which is where did the universe come from? And <laughs> uh, and the answer, honest answer is we don't really know. But I want to ask you, what, what is the most fascinating aspect of why did you become a professional cosmologist? There's millions of things you could do. Why did you become a uh, theoretical cosmologist? No,
0: yeah, that's a great question because um, it, I didn't exactly have a straight path. You know, I, I didn't go to undergrad and afterwards decided I will do a PhD in physics and that will be cosmology. It really is that I did first a PhD, a quick one, and uh, I was writing about the philosophy of science. And uh, then afterwards, you know, I was done. I was 25, and um, people told me, "Well, you are so young, and you have a physics degree. So why don't you look if you, if, if you want to do another PhD in Germany? It's quite common that one does two PhDs. Uh, and 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 why don't you look if you if you want to do it in physics? You had such good grades. You know, uh, um, talk to some people. And you know, I was talking to the person who was the second reader of my thesis back then in Munich, and he said, "Well." why don't you look into cosmology? Because if some big discovery will be happening soon, that probably will come from cosmology. And, you know, I really cannot explain why I took that, you know, at face value, but I just then started to take cosmology courses. Uh, um, I enrolled as a PhD student. And um, I, you know, it, it was fascinating. I was really lucky. I got my first cosmology course to I, I got to hear it with with it with, with Slava Mukhanov. He's one of, you know, the best person you can learn oh, yeah. from. And um I, I I just think I really liked it. And it really a lot of questions really intrigued me. And I really liked also the question that, you know, as a cosmologist, and I'm sure this is something that you enjoy too, you really have to know a little about every part of physics. So 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 I think the combination of um First, by somewhat of an accident, coming to the subject, but also you know the fact that um, I would say I'm a conceptual thinker. I, I like you know on the one hand I like to go into the smallest details of the equation and the computer program. On the other hand, I also like to keep the big picture. And cosmology is such a perfect subject for uh, uh, for people who like both parts of the story, both the details and the big picture. And but 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 you know really the most fascinating part of this is that. We have so many open questions in cosmology, yeah. and that's yeah. perhaps because we are talking, you're an experimentalist. I should also say, um, you know, what's more fascinating that we have experimental access to all these questions. So coming from the philosophy background, you would think, no. oh, all those questions: where does the universe come from? Where are we going? What is our place in the universe? Those are all more metaphysical questions. And then you realize, no, actually, you guys can go out and measure all the theory and test all the theories <laughs> that we make up. So so that, that certainly adds to it, why it's so fascinating.
1: Yeah. yeah, I I agree with exactly your perspective. In fact, when I teach my students, the first day of class I say, This is the only subject in the entire physics department that covers every subject in the physics department except for one which is biophysics i have yet to get into how biophysics works into cosmology although i do talk about the origin of life and things like that maybe it could be someday i'll get some you know i'll do a lab demonstration. i started doing lab demonstrations you know these classes are so theoretical i use this book by my friend barbara ryden which is a wonderful book uh and you know everybody in it and everything in it is incredibly theoretical except for you know we get into derivations and so forth of the einstein equations and gr and you and i will talk a little bit about that um so i just said i wonder if anyone's ever did you know experiments uh you know demonstrations in cosmology it turns out there's a lot of things you can do we have black body radiation we have acoustic oscillations uh, tomorrow I'm going to be doing um, some nuclear physics demonstrations. I'm going to be splitting the atom and cl- no, I'm not going to do that. They won't let me do that with, uh, without some waivers. But they will. Uh, hopefully, I'll get some uh, heavy water, some D two O, and I'll bring in some deuterium into the class and show them how uh, regular water ice cubes float, but deuterium ice cubes uh, the sink in ordinary water. We'll see if that actually works out if I have the budget for it but it's fun to do experiments and people love it and yet a lot of what you know most people are interested in when you talk to people like your colleague you know Brian Greene or I've had on Neil deGrasse Tyson and I've had on uh, Michio Kaku and all sorts of great names you know people are really interested in things like well can you tr- you know can a wormhole you know tell us about AdS CFT and and black hole information paradox and some of these things are highly philosophical and yet we never teach our students about philosophy. So I think you came at it from a great perspective, starting with the philosophy, moving in theoretical domain. And I wonder, you know, from your perspective, since you brought it up, I tell my students that it's harder to be an experimental cosmologist because not only do you have to know everything in your field of experiment, but you have to understand the theory of what's behind it. But I say, you don't have to do new theory. In other words, I, I don't expect them to do the th- brilliant things that, that you and your colleagues and your students work on, but I do expect them to be familiar with what you're doing, but not create it. What do you feel for an educated person as a theorist? What is the exper- Is the experimental minimum, to use Lenny Susskind's kind of terminology? What would you say for a theoretical cosmologist? What should he or she know at a minimum about experiments in general?
0: Well, you know, as much as one can. I think, I think that there is, you know, Difficult to say the minimum. I never thought about this. I think, you know, maybe if we we go concrete, I think a theoretical cosmologist should definitely be able to read a paper that is about, uh, let's say, CMB or dark energy, any survey data. And not just to read it, but also understand the statistical methods, can read the, you know, the data, the maps. So I do think that, you know, it's important um, not just to... Let me say it this way. It's not enough to know the six parameters. I go to the paper and look at the six cosmological parameters. They are fine, but I have to fit with my theory. That's not the minimum. That's not even step minus one, I would say. I think, you know, it's, it's really important to, to be able to, you know, converse with theorists. And know of the uh, ongoing experiments. I think it's really, uh, sorry, experimentalist. I miss <laughs> Uh and, 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 you know, know what, what the most important experiments are. It's, I also think it's very important, you know, at least for me, it's very important. You mentioned, you know, uh, uh, we actually know each other to talk to experimentalists. So as it's important for experimentalists to talk to theorists. I think it's really important to know your experimentalists. There are different experimentalists go about the experiments differently. They have different interests. They have, you know, different, just as theorists have different strengths and weaknesses. I think it's really important for, for uh, theorists to personally, so beyond being able to read the paper, I think the, the minimum is also that you know at least a bunch of leading experimentalists uh, personally. So I would add that definitely, you know, know your experimentalists, know whom you can ask about something if you are not quite sure. Uh, follow every release, uh, you know be up to date and and don 't say oh i 'm a theorist i don 't have to know everything know what a jackknife test is if you wish uh, you know, uh, know when, when when you guys go to Atacama what everything it takes and, and I have respect for what experimentalists are doing I mean I have an you know, immense respect for you guys what you are doing uh, it's, it just it 's just really amazing you know ju- just the fact that you know I suffer from autism sickness, just the fact that you climb up those mountains and spend a lot of time to build those <laughs> telescopes. Uh, uh, you know, just this minor aspect that's for you probably second nature. You know, I think it's really important that apart from, you know, the, theoret- also the theoretical minimum experiments, you have personal relationship and personal appreciation and, and understand that it's really important to talk to one another. You know, learn, learn the language, learn the language what experimentalists will understand and experimentalists should understand what theorists. So I think it's just like, you know, be friends, be good friends.
1: Because I think it's the minimum, yeah. And have an open, open mm-hmm. mind, open yeah. attitude. That you know, it's that mm-hmm. it takes both of us to do what we do. And I think you know what's what's interesting to me is that yeah, we come mm-hmm. to the conclusion the kids take this class presumably because they're interested mm-hmm. in the beginning of the universe. Mm-hmm. And on the first day, they're disappointed because I say we don't really discuss the beginning of the universe mm-hmm. because first of all, you don't know if there was a beginning, a single mm-hmm. beginning we don't know much about its uh, visibility and, and viability, mm-hmm. but also because the subject that we study, just like bi- biology, you don't start with the origin mm-hmm. of life when you take a biology class. Either mm-hmm. you start dissecting frogs or you know, I don't know mm-hmm. what they do in biology. But uh, <laughs> I think the dean needs to check them out. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but, but in reality, we don't really start with cosmogony. So uh, most people, I don't teach cyclic cosmology in my cosmology class as interested as I am in it. Um, So to what extent do people object to the study of the cyclic universe? What is the kind of uh, objection that people most present about the cyclic universe?
0: You know, I think we have to start probably historically what used to be the objections. And and, uh, very often people come back with those objections uh, also just to know if one already has an answer for them. So... As you mentioned, probably if one took a survey among all people in the world, we would find more people who, for one reason or the other, whether it's religious, whether it's, uh, you know, due to their upbringing, uh, we would find more who, who have some cyclic worldview. So that's, that's uh, I think, comes very natural to people in certain parts of the world and people who grew up perhaps in a more Western culture. Uh, um, Think more linearly. Think that you know there has to be actually everything a beginning and an end and in between some trajectory, very causal, uh, 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 linearly directed thinking. Um, and so that everything comes from, I think you feel a little uncomfortable. So I think the first feeling is, you know, this is not what I learned when I was a child that I went to school. I, I always heard the universe had to have a beginning. That was some sort of an explosion and that explosion gave rise to everything. And now you come to me and say that, that, that the big bang, even if it happened, wasn't an explosion, but maybe it didn't happen. Maybe it was just a transition from, from a contracting preface. And I think that the first... I think one really has to take it seriously, and this is always the case, right, when we teach people something, something in physics that's against our everyday intuition. It, it doesn't really matter whether it's energy conversion or whether it's, you know, uh, gravity or quantum field theory. It's always the fact that people are uncomfortable with the idea that what, the idea that they grew up with, is might not be the idea or might not be how nature works. So I think that, you know, that is the basic uh, um, attitude right now in certain parts of the world and, uh uh most physicists grew up with this idea. So I think that, that, that is really something that I, I take very seriously that, uh, you know, people come with some preconceptions and they like those preconceptions. And then comes the physics, right? So when we, um, um, the first time realized that Einstein's theory of general relativity Describes the evolution of the universe on large scales. Then we, um, the, I should say, Alexander Friedman also realized that, that the universe k- could choose three uh, um, different ways to evolve. And one of, so it could expand, it could contract, or it could oscillate between, and he called it an oscillating model between contraction to expansion, contraction to expansion. And that was, you know, he called it oscillating universe, but um, this is, I would say, the first modern uh, um, version of a cyclic universe. Now, there were some issues with, with Friedman's model and that was very quickly pointed out by Tormen. So, Torman was, was, was the person that is being most often quoted when it comes to what's wrong with the cyclic, why, why might the cyclic universe be a wrong idea? And um, we will probably get back to this, but Tormen is very simply, very often quoted in a way Oh, already Tormann has shown that somehow uh, um, a cyclic universe violates the second law of thermodynamics. So I think that that's what some people call it, the entropy problem. So this is the thing, the, the critique that most people would bring up, not necessarily um, um, because they believe in it or they read Tormann, but you have heard it one way or the other that that probably a cyclic universe has some sort of entropy problem. So that's
1: Because you're collapsing, because in his model...
0: Yeah, so 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 there are three aspects of this problem, and you know, you tell me uh, as to what degree you want to dive into this. But Thoman had uh, th- this aspect has three problems, or oh, the problem has three aspects. Sorry, <laughs> uh, the one the one is uh, I, I turned around the sentence. The, the The first one is you know that in, in um to, as Friedman imagined it, and that was the model that 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 Thoman criticized. Every single cycle is the same. So the universe contracts um then bounces, then expands, contracts, then bounces, then expands. And the contraction happens in a way that all physical distances eventually, and we know it doesn't make much sense since we since then know uh that is just from the quantum uh, uh perspective not make sense, uh, collapse to a single point. Right? That is that is and that that uh that everything crunches into into a point or a point like something. So all black holes in the universe collapse to together and there is some big mass created so that was one of the aspects of the problem there are two more aspects of the problem uh, uh the second one is 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 really the question if everything you know crunches uh don't you uh, um is that is, do you need the in, infinite entropy stage how can you get out of that phase and there was a third aspect to the problem and this is a more modern aspect to the problem that was people were uh, and, and, and I uh, have thought a lot about that aspect, namely hyperspace time. So people believe for a very long time, up until I would say a few years ago, that contracting universes uh, so Einstein uh, behave in a very specific way. And now we have to dive in a little bit, uh, because, because if you ask me what would be the most serious problem, it will turn out that the problem that people talk least about, is physically the most serious problem that you have to overcome. And this has something to do with the fact, again, we go back to where does our intuition come from, from contraction and how does Einstein relativity tells us all of our intuition actually, how we imagine it is wrong, it's Newtonian. And it it is really the, the idea, if I tell you, you have to imagine some contracting space or space-time, what you will think of is, inhomogeneity is growing, everything is collapsing eventually, probably a mass is being created, or you end up with a big black hole, right? That's what what most of us first think of a contraction, gravitational collapse is contraction. So a, a contracting universe is perhaps like a big black hole, is a black hole in the making. And that's not exactly a good condition for transiting, transitioning to a universe that is simple, flat, smooth, as beautiful as you can imagine from both from the distribution of the geometry and then from a matter perspective. And I promise, you know, our intuition is never, never really right within you know, Einstein gravity. Now, what turns out really, if you look at contracting universes, um, contraction is anything but collapse. So instead of the gradients growing, Einstein theory tells you, and it has been, has been a long-time conjecture, and mathematicians have been lately proving theorems about it, and I have been uh, uh, doing simulations, full numerical relativity simulations, just the same methods, you know, as people use used to, to simulate colliding black holes, to check this pers- this uh, conjecture, which says contraction is not collapse. Instead of your gradient, your inhomogeneity is your mass growing, space-time as it contracts, it it actually inhomogeneities vanish, and um, it, you become, instead of inhomogene, inhomogeneous, you become anisotropic. So only thing that matters is all gradient, all connectedness within space-time vanishes. So instead of a collapse, what happens is space-time points start to develop independently of one another. And so contraction is not collapse. But is it good enough? Is it a homogeneous, but anisotropic universe good enough for a bounce? Well, no you know if 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 uh, uh, you might want to show now one of the simulations as I send you uh, uh, and and i can I can uh, show that to you so we, we know how contracting universe we can check it and it 's really true that the gradients vanish, but what happens is, is something that's one cause a mixed master chaos or mess so because the space time points develop independently of one another, what really happens is that that uh in each point if you were Sitting in one point, what you would observe is that in one direction space-time contracts into other direction it expands and at different rates. And this is not great because what happens is really that, that, that that's why people call it chaos. It's a, it's a chaotic behavior of the geometry itself. And, um, and this is a third aspect of what we can call under the Tolman problem, that a contracting universe one way or the other is not a good precondition for a bounce, for transitioning, to an expanding universe. So that's, I think, you know, if you are a really sophisticated reader of the literature, these would be the three critique points that you would quote. Uh, what could be the problem uh, with the contracting universe is the, it's the crunch problem. It's the entropy problem or contradiction with the second law. And it is the mixed master chaos problem. That space time geometries become really crazy. Even though you don't collapse, you become chaotic and very anisotropic. So was a long answer for a short question.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right. So do you think it's, uh, you know, sometimes I I feel like a lot Mm -hmm. of these things are problems of marketing, Mm -hmm. like, uh, Mm -hmm. and because we're so used to teaching the story of the Friedman equations Mm -hmm. and and it's so rich to teach Mm -hmm. the uh, relativistic equations, which can involve things like the spatial curvature of the universe. Mm -hmm. But you and I just finished singing the praises Mm -hmm. of my experimentalist friends ranging from, Mm -hmm. you know, Lyman Page and the Mm -hmm. the Toco experiment back in Mm -hmm. 1990. Uh, eight and then the uh, boomerang and Maxima mm-hmm. experiments in ninety nine two thousand mm-hmm. we known for twenty two years now that the universe has zero spatial spatial curvature, and yet I spend a uh, a week teaching my students mm-hmm. out of the ten weeks I have about this so uh is mm-hmm. that because you know the math is so elegant and and so beautiful, even though I mean we don't teach about well there used to be that there you know the universe could have. Uh, essentially you know begun from a uh you know from a static or quasi static state mm-hmm. and actually we don't know how uh, is it a problem of of advertising or marketing or is there some some other reason why you think that people aren't as familiar with cyclic universes in the context of of the history of cosmology but even current uh, uh current work and in investigations do you, do you feel like there's a basically a, a marketing problem so to speak
0: <laughs> um that's a tough question. <laughs> you know, I, I actually think um, you can call it a marketing problem, but I believe that, you know, very often we teach um, different subjects in physics as people, um, as, as ideas developed, how we came to know about them. For example, and I don't, so, so when you m- mention spatial curvature, So a lot, and and we should also praise the theorists of the last uh, 40 or 50 years, Um, how we came to our current model, how we just came to appreciate that we might need something to patch the old hot Big Bang model that, you know, really describes our universe. We call it hot Big Bang, but it's really the description between, let's say, nuclear synthesis and today. Um, That that people realized, well, um, first, you know, they looked out to the universe um, those were, you know, your previous colleagues starting with Friedman. And said so this, is, this, is, this is the universe is expanding. And its geometry, you already named the Friedman equations, is very elegant. It doesn't matter where you are, in what direction you look. That's what we call homogeneous and isotropic. Uh, it's everywhere the same on large scales. Of course, not on small scales. This is crazy. Well, Everything looks different when we look around. But we, if we go to large enough scales beyond the scale of galaxies, then everything looks very elegant. And you would think that simplicity is maybe this is very natural, right? So that, that's what would be how could it be different? Why would it not be simple? Why would it not be the simplest possibility? And I think you know in science it's really important to be unconventional very often when you want to find something new. And people said, Well, let's check it. And let's check it again. Einstein relativity. What does relativity tell us? What if we let's just run the movie backwards starting from today? Would it be, let's just be the simplest deviation and the simplest deviation is your curvature term. Let's see if that curvature term remains small if it started, start with it being small today. And a lot of people discovered it's actually growing, right? So what, what, what really happened is that there is an instability. Even if you start with small, but not exceedingly small curvature, you would have to see today given the equations with which that you use to describe the large scale evolution, what you would have to see is large curvature contributions. And that's how, you know, that was really, I think, a very, very short history to the, to the, uh, to the, you know, upcoming of this discomfort that maybe the the hot big bang theory is incomplete. And that's why I think, you know, one teaches it this way. Now, um, and that was also a very important insight that led them to, to the development of, of inflationary cosmology, out of which, I should say, then, then, then the cyclic considerations grew out. So the, some people who developed inflationary cosmology were also the same people who, who were the first contributors to the cyclic cosmology. And then I think, you know, it is really just, it stuck, it stuck this explanation that, you know, we just look at the Friedman equation with, with some curvature because it has been so helpful in the past. But, you know, what many people don't teach, you know, and I I find, you know, looking at just the contracting solution of the Friedman equation so educational because it tells you so much about, you just learn so much about how gravity behaves in the context of Einstein relativity that we believe is a description of of gravity uh, on many, many scales is the correct description. And so if you, you know, I think that both the relativists and the cosmologists just teach it for the first, uh, you know, the first reason should be you learn so much. First of all, most people don't know that the Friedman equations, right, they admit both a contracting and an expanding solution. And it's in the initial conditions. We tell the equations whether we want to have the contracting or expanding solution. Why don't we not teach it? I think it's historical. And then now you tell me, um, um, should one teach it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. One should teach it both to get the right intuition about gravity. But then afterwards, you know what, and that's what I got so excited about is, you know, it really opens up a completely new set of possibilities that might be actually the right explanation of what we see when we look out, for example, into the microwave background. So I would agree with you again. Yeah, it has a marketing problem. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think so, too. And actually, you know, when I think about even the explanation that inflation purports to provide, I think where inflation has been successful is not in explaining where the universe came from or explaining where the elements came from or all sorts of things, because oftentimes it raises more questions than it actually answers, but rather as a theory of structure formation. And before we get to how structures can, uh, can occur in a cyclic and the new cyclic, uh, cosmology that you and others have developed i wonder if we could you know kind of explain this most common objection that i spoke about with will kinney uh, a few months back for his book an infinity of worlds which involves you know doesn't shy away from you know the kind of quantum runaway as as you guys call it the uh, the multiverse problem in fact it embraces it as a core tenant of uh, of his work which i endorsed on the back of his book along with your friend the other more popular, Brian of cosmology, uh, there in New York City area, um, but I want to ask you uh, what what he seemed to say was a objection to the uh, to the bouncing model was this this issue of geodesic completion. I wonder what what does that mean, uh, and why doesn't it afflict uh, the the bouncing model just the same way, uh, or the inflationary model, perhaps? Um, is it uh, maybe worth detouring first to talk about the Borde-Guth-Vilenkin theorem and, and can you talk about what is what is a geodesic and what does geodesically complete mean and then maybe we'll get into this BGV uh, ideas.
0: Maybe but you know um, it's actually a really technical concept right so I'm very happy to talk about it because yeah, my, um, my audience is yeah, the most
1: brilliant yeah. <laughs> in the whole universe or multiverse according to you. It's well. great to hear. <laughs>
0: Uh, No, I I actually just attended a conference last week and I was chatting with Roger Penrose about geodesic completeness in cyclic cosmologies. So um, we share a lot of, you know, um, intuition ideas, how it might work. But let's get back to, I, I mentioned Roger for a particular reason, because one has to start really with him and and, and Stephen Hawking when one starts to talk about geodesic completeness. Since uh, ge- com- geodesic completeness is really a, a, a technical feature of um, Einstein gravity. And this came up um, in their First, and probably up until today most prominently, more prominently probably than the BGV or bort uh, gut theorems, the uh, hawking Penrose singularity theorems, they actually should be called incompleteness theorems. Because what they show is that in a certain sense, so if you follow the geodesics, uh, is uh, the path that within relativity massive particles travel. And um, the question was, you know, how far back in time can you follow the path of m- massive particles? Uh, finitely or infinitely far. And uh, um, what Penders and Hawking have shown, very simply speaking, so none of my mathematicians' friends would, you know, probably approve this at a higher level. But if you want to have the shortest explanation, and they say what they have shown is that general relativity is incomplete, geodesically incomplete, because within finite time massive particles uh, uh, um, reach a singular singular surface your audience is brilliant so I can call it this way so you reach a singularity and that's how the singularity theorem stuck but it's really a geodesic incompleteness theorem about about relativity and what what Penrose and Hawking have been uh, um, interested in or very interested in was were expanding space-time that expand at a decelerated rate, let's say simply matter or radiation dominated space-time. Those space time that were also well uh, uh, describing the hot Big Bang model, those space that start with maybe radiation domination and then matter domination, would apply also to space-times that are matter-dominated or universes uh, and are described by Einstein gravity. And now that, what, 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 and it's very simple. Now that you you have this concept of what they were following, they were following the trajectories of massive particles, uh, what Borg, Guth, and Wilhelm can add to is they extended the theorem to, inf- to space-time that involve an inflationary pace, that involve acceleration. And they have shown that space-time that are ex- expanding at an accelerated rate, inflationary space-time, for example, are also geodesically incomplete. So if you follow the uh, um, uh path of massive particles, now what you will see is within a, a, um, a finite time uh, in certain coordinates, um, they called it conformal coordinates, but this is really technical. So that the important thing was that you reach a singular surface. That was, that was important about, uh, Bord, Goodwill Now, why is it important? Why why would one care about technical terms in cosmology? Well, some people actually use this to show that the universe necessarily needs to have a beginning, right? And, um, uh, I think that that's when, when one goes beyond what the mathematics tells you, what, what the theory tells you, it's really a feature of a theory. You cannot tell if you just use Einstein gravity, then the equations break down after, at, at right. a certain it's, point. It's mm-hmm. more
1: like a no-go yeah. theorem, which is one of my problems with a lot of inflation, mm-hmm. you know, with the slow roll conditions. Mm-hmm. I often hear, and I can say this because I'm not working in this field, even if you don't, uh, you know, subscribe to what I'm saying, but... People say oh the, the slow roll inflation ends when the slow roll conditions end you know when they're violated but I'm like well wait how does how does the inflaton know anything about what we call the slow roll it just seems like that's a uh, that's a consistency problem for us to deal with but you know it's like if they say about birds you know birds don't really need the study of ornithologists to you know to know how they go about their daily business so isn't this just saying that that the unif- that the math breaks down At a certain point, and what we have now needs a quantum theory of gravity, not that there's a Big Bang or a singularity. Isn't that sort of an interpretation? I, I
0: think this is a perfect interpretation of it. By the way, Pandora's who introduced the singularity theorems works on cyclic cosmologists, right? I mean, I know that yes, Roger yes, is your right. good friend, so so yes, yes, <laughs> many yes, people, yes, because I should have started, maybe I should not quote Thomas. maybe nowadays, of course, many people say, but don't the singularity theorems prove the Big Bang? No, they prove really as you said it. I don't think that one can say it better than you said it, Brian, that yeah, uh, space time, much, yeah. no, no, <laughs> no, honestly. <laughs> it's uh, a high praise time, from you. <laughs> <laughs> but if it's true, one has to say it. Um, so, um, that. That, that, that the Einstein equations are not you know um, well suited to explain the but whatever is what what you call either the big bang or a bounce or whatever, or in Roger's model a transition from one as he called it eon to another this is this is exactly what it is, but you know i should not I don't think that it's good to um, in a certain sense I was oh is it important? I also think that it's important because whenever we see whenever we can point out a limitation of a theory that opens up a new question. We know oh okay, this is really important, the singularity theorems are both Borde, Guth, Willankin, uh, um are important because we know that those space if you wanna explain where those space time come from as and, and you know as as theorists, but also then later as experimentalists, you should be interested in explaining and then showing it, then we have to know what the limitations of our theories are. And in that sense, it's helpful. But of course, that's what I'm saying. Perfect uh, formulation. Um, um, It doesn't tell anything about what replaces the Einstein equations there and what physics that replacement. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: know about the theorems. So it's mathematics. Uh, So the theorem rests on certain assumptions. And one assumption is, of course, that gravity is described by Einstein relativity. But there is a more important assumption. These theorems rest on the assumption that the masses of particles remain constant. And that's a very strong assumption. And under that assumption, and it was already shown, if you read, the I think, second to last uh, or, or something like that, the, the last column in the printed version of ward guth paper, they show that under that assumption, you can have a cyclic universe that includes infinitely many cycles and is nevertheless geodesically incomplete. And this is true. This is definitely where, where, the, where, where the state, where, where the field was uh, about 20 years ago. So... Whatever cyclic model I would take, whether this is the model that I work on, whether it's the model that, that uh, colleagues worked on, uh, um, um, let's say whether it's Steinhardt-Turok, whether it's Brandenburger, whoever uh, works on these models, as long as you keep the, the, the mass of, uh, of, of your particles constant, the theorems apply. And as long as your uh, theory of gravity is Einstein gravity or certain energy condition, as we call it, which is a somewhat of an equivalent statement, are satisfied. Now, that was a brilliant uh, um, recognition. And, and I think it came from really two directions. One of them is Roger, and the other one were, were uh, um, Itzhak Bars, who is actually very close to you sitting at the University of Southern California, uh, Neil Turok and Paul Steinhardt, in about a little bit over 10 years ago. They say, well, uh, we know from fundamental physics, whether you think of the Higgs or whether you think of some sort of symmetry restoration in the early universe, that is probably not true that the masses of particles remain constant, whether due to the Higgs mechanism that, you know, for example, and that was the Barr-Steinhardt-Turok idea, the particles gain a very big mass during contraction. Or the Penrose is a beautiful pendant idea that maybe due to the restoration of conformal symmetry around the transition from, from one cycle to the other, the particles become massless. So in two ways, you can break the assumptions of the theorem. And, you know, really, this is unfortunate, not my idea. I, I was a grad student back then. I wrote to you earlier. And I was really envious of this idea because then you can compute. Can, this is... So just talk about it, and I'm sure your audience knows it, uh, since you have had a lot of uh, more technical discussions with guests than with me. And that one, one, one formulates this question uh, of how far can I track back uh, 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 the world line of massive particles as a, in a form of an integral. And if one has a varying mass, whether due to the Higgs mechanism you make them big and heavy during the contracting phase or you make them massless during, during uh, uh, a conformal uh, re, symmetry restoration or due to conformal symmetry restoration, it turns out that those integrals uh, um, don't converge. As we say, they are not finite, so they, you evade the, 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 the conclusions. Of of the old singularity theorems or incompleteness theorems, so so it's you know it's it's fairly uh, well cited in the literature. These papers, especially the 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 Bars uh, Steinhardt turok papers, so um, I would say that this is very elegant. So that, that that that's what shows that you know you can have cyclic universes that are geodesically uh, complete now. I must say that you know I don't know if you couldn't apply this to just an eternally expanding universe. Uh, um, one should look at it. I think it's an open question, mm-hmm. but it's a really important insight, and I would want to emphasize it uh, that the assumptions of the theorems uh, are really important, and loopholes are of course always in which th- which of the assumptions are related to which of the assumptions might be relaxed might be meaningfully relaxed uh, uh for the physical world and this is here the constant mass of the particles but i should say really i'm really really sad that this wasn't my idea this is something that you know <laughs> well, i would have lots of, of figures
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah including yeah. The, you know one of the ones that i associate with you maybe maybe uh you know it's just I'll, i can i can just give you so much praise but you know this issue that really appeals to me so much is you know, something that you pointed out to me a long time ago or a couple of years now, which, you know, before COVID and everything seems like decades ago. Uh, and that was this idea that the key kind of core idea is that the contraction is slow. And we have this in your model and we have this notion, you know, the big the big crunch is like the inverse of the Big Bang and therefore it's going to be this violent, you know, disruptive, incredibly, you know, uh, monumental uh, occurrence. But if you, you convince me um, <clears throat> you know that this is not the case. so maybe you can speak about these ideas that that you you've worked so so assiduously on What, what is the idea of slow of slow contraction? How does that play in and really solve all these problems that plague uh, previous attempts going back a hundred years almost?
0: I think there are you know it's important to um, um, look at both aspects of the cyclic evolution, Now there are really three, but the third one we all know. And don't question. That's the current expanding phase, right? Um, so so cyclic, cyclic cosmologists have really have to tackle three parts. The one is, we will talk about it in a second, the slow contraction phase. That's the phase that precedes the bounce. And uh, in models of cyclic cosmology, it's really important. This is the phase during which the conditions are being generated that should explain the large-scale structure that we observe today, that you guys observe when you look into your telescopes. Um, the contracting phase, uh, is connected to the hot expanding phase by a cosmological bands. And typically, you know, cosmology and cosmologists since, you know, since really since the, uh, um, um, into introduction of inflation work in a. A modular way. So cosmologists are very modular. So you often focus on one phase, try to tackle the problems, and then you hope that you can attach them onto to the next phase, and then you hope that you can attach them to the next phase. And in this sense, you know what what I I believe we all agree on, really, because you know. You and your colleagues have shown it so so uh, beautifully and convincingly. It's the hot expanding phase. So between nuclear synthesis and today, when we are just entering dark energy domination, there, you know there is very little room to wiggle. One one can work on what the dark matter is, but that you know uh, the large scale evolution is very well described by if we just as you measure it, we know that what uh, um. About what percentage of the total energy density is matter that's enough for us, and it's a very important question what the dark matter is. But 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 you know that it's not so important from the from the perspective of can I describe the large scale evolution. And now when we come to the contracting phase, so let's let's put let's think in a modular way, so put the bounce aside a little bit, and let's 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 talk about the contracting phase because that's really something um, as that is something that we can well describe uh, simulate and uh, make predictions um, about or using it by way of it. And the contracting phases, you know, for just to understand what's happening, it's really important that we, we often speak about contraction, expansion, accelerated expansion, decelerated expansion, slow contraction, fast contraction. What's really important, you know, to, to invoke is that within relativity, you always have to think of two scales. You cannot just talk about, you know, what do object in space-time, for example, two black holes do relative to one another. That's, you know, if they move apart from one another, that's expansion. If, they, if the distance between them is shrinking, that's what we call contraction. But for cosmologists, it's very important um, um, to look at a second quantity. And this is the quantity uh, uh, that tells us as to how far we can see at a given time. This is our Hubble radius, right? So we have, we have, we have, or, or, or we can say it roughly. This is the distance of causal interactions. And now, for cosmology, it's really important. And this is something we learned uh, uh, from people who first developed inflation. How important it is to to solve cosmological problems, to look at both scales at the same time and the relative uh, uh, dynamics of the two scales. And it's important as the beauty of Einstein relativity, that the distance between between objects or physical distances move at a different rate, evolve at a different rate than, than, than the Hubble radius. So the, the scale of interactions, of causal interactions. And what the rate is, it, it is it is de- determined by the matter content of the universe. So what is slow contraction? But let, let's start with what is uh, decelerated expansion, if if the universe is dominated by radiation or matter, then what we know is then the Hubble radius is expanding faster than the distances between objects. And that's the reason why we see more than what was in our causal past. And that's, that's, that's one way of saying that we have an initial conditions problem. Today we know we see actually 10 to the 28, 10 to the, Twenty nine Hubble patches uh, that were Hubble patches in the early universe. That is one way of saying we have a problem because they should not have interacted with one another. Now slow contraction is decelerating because because physical distances expand slower and it will be important for slow contraction relative to the Hubble radius. Now, if you want to solve this problem, what we learned since the 80s, what you have to do is that physical distances again, move at a different rate, but in, an, in, in a certain sense in an inverse way. What do we need? We need that that when we start, and that was the original idea of inflation too, when we started one Hubble patch that has almost the right features, we want to extend the features of that Hubble patch over many, many Hubble patches by the by the end of this phase. And what does slow contraction do? You start with a huge Hubble patch low, at very low energies. And what you say is, we will hardly move physical distances uh, towards one another. That's why it's slow. But what moves fast is, on the other hand, uh, you shrink on, 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 on your physical patch, um, uh, the hubble radius at a very fast rate. So slow contraction is slow if you are a black hole or a local observer, but it's very fast from, from the perspective of the Hubble pass. So all of a sudden you lose sight. Very quickly you lose sight of many things. Why is this good? Well it is good because uh um while this 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 um dynamics is occurring Two very important things happen, which we know, and you know since uh, um, uh, you are a cosmologist, they are both important. The first thing is obviously the extend local features on super Hubble scales. That's really important because we see today that the same features extend over exponentially many Hubble scales. So that's given to you and and that's a really elegant it, it comes out automatically of the theory. this slow contraction means you cannot help it. Features become uh, uh, extended over super Hubble scales. But it's a second more important thing, and this is something I've worked on a lot lately. It turns out. You can write it down pencil and paper. It's much nicer to do it with a computer. So so you can start with, with, you know, any kind of initial conditions. And what I mean is metric configuration. You have can very messy geometry. You can have lots of curvature, uh, lots of anisotropies, the shear, uh, directionality in, in your geometry. The, your your, your uh, matter content can be very messy. The only important thing is you have a particular scalar field in there. If you have a particular scalar field, and it doesn't have to dominate the energy density, it doesn't have to have an elegant distribution. The only thing what you need for it is that it has a a, a potential energy, uh, which is negative, sufficiently negative, and the potential energy curve is sufficiently steep, then you can start with almost arbitrary initial conditions. And this will give you um, a flat and smooth universe. So this is beautiful. And why it's happening? Well, it's happening for two reasons. The one reason is um, this it, it looks so space time and this is something I want to get back to a point that people thought you remember I said the concern with co- contracting universe was not that it's collapsing within Einstein gravity but it's becoming anisotropy dominated so every very sheer and that's not I mean you know it's not how, how the microwave background looks it's not how a large scale universe looks but what happens really is if you have the differences the difference between those considerations and our consideration is the scalar once you drop into the scalar field, that could be the higgs, you know it could be that the Higgs has a true negative minimum or some other scalar and and once once you have the scalar, it turns out that that space time becomes still local, the gradients vanish. so for free, as in every contracting space time you don't have to be worried about inhomogeneity. half of a price is done it it, it it half of the task is done, and the second thing what happens is instead of going to a mess this Scalar with a negative potential energy density tells space time. I'm talking here metaphorically, but it's really the case what you see, it makes all the difference. Since instead of going to this chaotic uh, uh, um, uh, um, mess, which is shear dominated, you go to a flat Friedman-Robertson-Walker. So that's the beauty of it. And this is now, so both that, that the smoothness and flatness is on super Hubble scales, and that it's generated... From starting from really really arbitr- nearly arbitrary initial conditions. You know, this is something that makes it very exciting um, um, uh, to look at these cosmologies. also because you didn't introduce any different theory of gravity. So, so everything that you need to explain flatness and smoothness is given to you with Einstein gravity contracting universe if there is a scalar field that has a sufficiently steep negative potential
1: to next because you and <laughs> cuz you and I had a friendly debate and again you know I'm so grateful to have friends like you that can explain things to me I'm a simple experimentalist but I have a great uh, detail detailed affection for ideas both classical and 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 new ideas like you have have uh, brought so many creative new ideas to this field um but you know I always uh, say that it would be great you know if there was an alternative to inflation that didn't have a scalar field because the thing that most troubles me until you know 2012 we didn't know of any scalar fields that existed let alone one that was cosmologically important and then of course we we suspected the higgs existed but the higgs is the only known scalar field and so i thought well you know it would be great if, instead of the inflaton, you shouldn't multiply hypotheses, as I think uh, Descartes said, or somebody said way back when, and uh, you should never uh, have excessive, uh, excessive, <clears throat> um, you know, parameters, if you will, in, in modern parlance. And and you corrected me because you said, well, you know, what is what's so bad about a scalar field? You didn't fight back, you know, the way that say Sir Roger does, right? Sir Roger has these arabons and. And again, he's a friend of mine, uh, and so uh, and I push back on him too because I say, you know, he has these—he doesn't have a scalar field per se, but then he has to account for how dark matter evolves because the dark matter is providing some, you know, version of this effect that that you are solving with the scalar field. So um, now you corrected me, and I wonder if you can if you can recapitulate that. Uh, why is it not so? They're uh, so troublesome to have a scalar field in the bouncing alternative models to inflation.
0: Well, I think you know, in general, what I wrote to you is it's in general not troublesome to have a scalar field, in my point of view. You know, um, it's probably one has to pan back a little bit because, um a lot of things. How you judge a theory depends on what you expect from a theory, what you think a theory should deliver, and under what condition. What you accept as a uh, as a good ingredient or as an acceptable ingredient, and what you don't. And um, I believe, you know, the the, the, the simple explanation is we haven't found anything simpler that delivers us uh, the same. So I think that you know the the, the idea of simplicity um, with respect to theories is is a, it's a little bit of a um, it can be used in very different ways but it's always a relative um, um a concept right you have two theories and if they make if, if they give you the same amount if they deliver the same amount then you can say the simpler theory uh, uh should be preferred and what do i mean here well first of all we need the background flatness and smoothness but we also need the origin of structure so we also need the uh, the 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 source of 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 um, what reveals its structure, which reveals itself as as temperature and isotropies of the microwave background. So, if we need that, then we know that those are sourced by some scalar degree of freedom. Now, um, it might be a condensate; that would not be a scalar field. But right now, our best descriptions are uh, uh, using a scalar. And the second reason why I find you know uh, the scalar is an you know, you know it, because we have corresponded about that, that um, we know how to introduce quantum fluctuations for a scalar field on a locally flat background, we know, we know quantum field theory and flat background. And our best knowledge tells us and our best observations of the microwave background, that the origin of the temperature and isotropies are quantum fluctuations uh, in the curvature, which is a scalar degree of freedom, but we believe that was excited by some scalar stre- matter density, which is a scalar field. So this is a complicated explanation, but the point is scalar fluctuations in a scalar field relate to scalar fluctuations in the curvature, which relate to temperature fluctuation in the microwave background. So you need some sort of scalar. That was my answer. And because we excite the scalar degree of freedom of the metric, Therefore, it doesn't seem to be so unnatural to have a scalar field that does it. Now you could say, "Well, wow, this is circular, right? Uh, you know what you have to do. Therefore you introduce a scalar field. How do you know a condensate couldn't do it? How do you know something else couldn't do it? But I don't. And you know, I think that it's important that people look into alternatives. I can live with it because it's mm-hmm. overall in theoretical physics. But just because I can live with it, and I think, you know, for me, it's more important right now to figure out if I can, you know, uh, generate a good uh, uh, balance model, can put it on the computer, and therefore I won't look at uh, right now, look into it, if I can have a better idea. I think it's very important to explore. So therefore, you know, um, just because I can live with it, it doesn't mean that this is the simplest explanation possible. I think it's simple enough um for the purposes that we need it for but if we had a simpler explanation then we need another ingredient you know because i appreciate that you experimentalists would like to measure directly whatever generates the microwave background and this invisible field whether it's during inflation or during slow contraction is a little bit bothersome right so i appreciated that you know this is this is something that you know um you would like to exchange or trade for something that can be directly measured. So I think people should go for it and see if one can replace mm-hmm. it by something simpler. But right now for the reasons it's a little bit of a theoretical reasons I'm not bothered by. It. And because it's, you know, overall in theoretical physics.
1: Let me ask if the, mm-hmm. uh, in the final remaining mm-hmm. minutes before I jump on, uh, not a telescope, mm-hmm. Anna. Unfortunately, I spend most of my time on telecons, mm-hmm. but uh, and I, I do conversations like mm-hmm. these because it makes me sane, and I, and I appreciate. I want to get because I can't resist. Um, what what is your take on the Hubble tension? Is there is is there something fundamental at work here? Is it more prosaic that you know we missed the systematic, or uh, and so forth? I'm going to be talking with Adam Reese uh, this week. By the time my interview with you airs, this interview uh, it'll be long in the past. So do tune in uh in the in the past i don't know that violates causality uh but anyway Anna. Uh, um so he's going to be talking obviously he has new measurement kind of a uh, percent level uh, measurement of the hubble uh constant do you think there's anything else that could be going on or let me ask you is there do you have a, a an explanation you know that you prefer hypothetically for resolving this is it is it a fundamental issue that could be shaking things up or is it more likely to be a systematic error as i
0: you see, um I, I was telling you, know. I think it's important if you're a theorist to have good friends. Um in, in among experimentalists and you know whom you trust and maybe did a pre-selection or not, or whom you trust more. Of course you trust everyone, but whom you trust more. Uh and I would say those people that I trust most tell me that um it's it's likely not physics, it's likely systematics. I'm not I'm not an analyst and i'm not a not an observer, so I would say the people uh whom I trust would not yet be ready to declare it that is that is a mild expression. some are very um sure it's it's uh, systematic so um, you know I think it, it relates a little bit how I view this um, how I view everything um whether it was you know bicep two whether it's distension or the uh, um an isotopy part. I like to wait wait it out. You know, I um I, I don't like um uh, ambulance chasing. So I'm not the type of physicist that, that, you know, writes down a model for every anomaly that one can have. I think it's important, actually, probably it sounds a little dismissive, but I don't mean it that way. I think it's really important to have, to have uh, people in the field who are very creative, quick creative, and whenever something comes up, they tell you, well, that's what you would need to do in order to accommodate that. But then the second step is also important. If it's complicated... And I would call early dark energy complicated. Um, then probably the lesson is maybe that hints us, you know, either you have to work harder to have a better explanation or it's really systematic. But I like to, you know, I, I actually, more of the reason I like to wait. I like to let experimentalists and analysts work it out first. And then when it's really profoundly established, you know, uh, um, at the five plus sigma level, that's when I would turn to it. So I I like to follow these debates, but it's more, you know, it's really my approach to to, to these things. I don't think that everybody should have the same approach, but, you know, I have my own approach. I'm more, uh, you know, working on fundamental concepts and trying to make predictions given the theoretical work and don't tend to jump, you know, at three sigma-ish results. I like to wait it out. And, you know, I think it's very interesting to watch you guys work this out. And I think it's very interesting to see that the CMB measurements, all of them, whether it's Planck or WMAP, uh, you know, and, and the upcoming, they agree. So, so that's probably, you know, I don't know where it comes from, whether it's a late universe, whether, you know, I do follow the talks. I I do follow, uh, uh, you know, the discussion between Adam Rees and Wendy Friedman and others and the CMB community, but I would not, um, 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 be willing to write down a theory or even just say what it is. But I must also say that I believe that the early dark energy is not the most attractive explanation that I could imagine if it's really physics
1: well in a part two in the future we'll have to get into that as well as some similarities perhaps that you pointed out to me and to others and the and the potential for the the hicks field to play uh, multiple roles in uh, the bouncing or cyclic models um but i want to yeah just touch on what you just said because i think that's that's really important we're talking about educating people and earlier we talked about you know do we teach about the you know, the, uh, that the, the spatial curvature could be negative one, you know, it's like, no, we shouldn't do that. I mean, it's, it's like, uh, teaching, you know, that there's uh, no evolution or something. But what bothers me, I guess, is that we, I almost see a parallel, like people don't want to teach, uh, about, we don't want to teach bouncing models or alternatives in our standard cosmology classes. And it's kind of like, you know, cosmologists, working in the field feel like they're teaching intelligent design or something like it just feels so uh so uncomfortable teaching about i i think it's stupid i I think we should it's a you know it's a brilliant idea it's an interesting idea uh people have worked on this for decades and and people have an opinion about it that's ill-formed maybe from decades earlier. But but thanks to you, and, and the reason I bring this up with respect to you and your unwillingness to ambulance chase, which I think is a great metaphor, um, is is, uh, is is a testament to your taste. And I think that you, in particular, and this new generation of, of young uh, theorists, if I can call you young without being patronizing, uh, are, are super creative, and that you're not just riding bandwagons, chasing trends. I feel like you are incredibly courageous. You personally, Anna, and I hope that this has inspired some young people in my audience to, to look deeper into what you've written. And I'll have links to all your all your um, uh, your vast biography and these phenomenal papers and talks that you give. It's just like whenever I get to hear one of your talks, and, and I was adamant a couple of years back when I organized the seminar series at, at Caltech, that you be one of the speakers because your, your way of communication is very forceful. It's very logical. It's methodical and and i think it's open minded and i think that's lacking so much in our modern cosmology parlance and and i wonder if part of it is because you don't go on social media you're uh you know you, you it's frustrating because i can't like tag you in all these cool places when you do cool stuff but anyway you don't have to respond to any of that anna i do but i, do. I do actually i'm so happy
0: to i am happy okay. to no no that,
1: that's okay. not a problem go ahead so, yeah uh
0: this is this is something um I, I i actually think a lot about it you know i think what's really important that's why it's probably a short answer you know i have been very lucky with my upbringing with my, my family and my schools, you know, I don't think that one should be too afraid of what one teaches kids and what one teaches younger adults. One should teach them to make up their own minds. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you embrace them, it's, it, it, you know, very often that they won't agree with you, but it's really important that you come from them, especially with ideas that you might not believe in so that they can make up their own mind. And yeah, I am not nice. in social media because I believe Look, I appreciate what you are doing and many are doing. And I know that social media has nice aspects, but the problem is also it is also um, encouraging more and more in my view. And I don't think that, you know, you are prone to that more, you know, an intellectual conformity. Uh, something that you know people are afraid of having a different opinion. than what's being established as a majority opinion, and you know this is not what I'm saying. This is unfortunately something that I experience, and that you know right now this is a problem in our country and a problem worldwide. That we have to address how to how to make it a uh, a positive experience without you know eliminating viewpoint diversity, because we know if we eliminate that uh, and trade it for fear. And and for conformity out of fear, then we actually stop innovation. And my approach right now is not to participate in social media. I am happy to go on podcasts. I'm happy to uh, um, give talks. That's my job. But I cannot take, I think right now, the likes and the dislikes and the comments and the retweets. So this is a very conscious. I was joking
1: You know, if uh, Galileo had been around and Twitter had been around rather when Galileo was was around back then or Einstein, you know, they would have had these blunders and uh and people would have teased them or my favorite is Maxwell you know James Clerk Ma- Maxwell had the Maxwell equations and Maxwell Boltzmann he had these wonderful ideas they're all true they're all correct but if you ask what was the microphysics behind Maxwell's equations they were vortices and gears and whirlpools and luminiferous ether and he would have been roasted and maybe you know cosmologists would have then had to wait decades you know to to think about the implications for relativity and and the Yang Mills equations and all sorts of things. So good good for Maxwell, lucky for him that that uh, Twitter didn't exist back then. But Anna, now I want to turn to the final thrilling three questions that I ask all my honored guests who come on the show. So I wish uh, to ask you final three questions in the in the remaining couple of minutes that we have. Are you willing to go into the impossible with me now, Anna? Let's go. <laughs> okay, great. So the first one of the thrilling three questions has to do with what you put in your ethical will, when you reach the age of 120 <laughs> material will, uh, but what sorts of wisdom you touched on some of this a minute ago, mm-hmm. uh, but what kind of a, uh, you know wisdom would you, would you most want to communicate? Not knowledge of which you mm-hmm. have replete, uh, you know, stored storehouse, but what wisdom would you want to bequeath you? I believe
0: that, I, you know, I, I did mention it because this is something, you know, I've, Find important. I think two aspects, perhaps. I think it's really important that one should always have the courage to make up one's own mind, and then more importantly, one has the courage to stand up to one's convictions. I think it's really important, especially when it gets one into trouble, um, not to bend. Not no no. I, I really I really think it's important. You know, not not. It it's really something that I keep as my life philosophy make up your own mind about what's right, and do what's right.
1: Very nice, very good to hear that. Uh, the next question involves going even farther into the future, involves these unseen monoliths that are present in this movie, 2001, A Space Odyssey came out long before you were born. Uh, but it's really kind of a version of Richard Feynman's cataclysm question. You know, When some cataclysm erases all human knowledge, what would you put in a time capsule that really encapsulates what humans are capable of, kind of brag on behalf of humanity, what would you put in a billion-year lasting time?
0: You know, that will be boring, but I, I, it, it leads us back to your very first question, why I'm in cosmology. I really would put in, but that should please you, uh, the map, the temperature and isotropy map of the CMB with, with the equations that describe it. You know, it's, it's really because in order to, first of all, we share this with everyone in the universe, right? This is just our universe. And in that map, it's all of our physics that we figured and also what we haven't figured. Einstein relativity, the black body radiation, that photons, that light is particle and wave, that electrons, the atomic theory, uh, you know, you know, quantum field theory to understand the, the two and three point functions, all the statistics, you know, and what we don't know, where is this coming from? What generated it? Was there a beginning? Where are we going? You know, dark matter as the you know. What matter made of what we need? The you know. So I I really would, you know. This is just it is <laughs> it's a so little bit it's just talking to the bag. But it's,
1: yeah. yeah. Now I. I, in fact, that was my answer to that same question. Oh, really? I put put in the power spectrum because, you know, you can get, okay. to get mm-hmm. the power spectrum out mm-hmm. is a little bit easier to understand. But like you said, it's visible throughout mm-hmm. the whole universe. Okay. So I, actually, your, your answer contains slightly more information than mine. But I think Feynman <laughs> would be proud of you uh, for answering that way. I hope he would, because your answer <laughs> obliterates his. His was just that the universe has atoms in it. You've got now atoms, radiation, photons, <laughs> uh, quantum.
0: I got everything. But Feynman didn't you have access. To the maps, right? Who knows what That's he would right. have yeah. said. He's so one he, of my he, great heroes, so I would hope that if if I had ever met him,
1: absolutely. <laughs> uh, last question goes back in mm-hmm. time, uh, mm-hmm. and it's sort of advice to your former self, and wow. it's the uh, statement, famous statement from Arthur C. Clarke: "The only way of discovering the limits of the possible is to venture a little way past them into the impossible." So it's the origin of this podcast. name. so I want to ask you, and if you could go back to your 20-year-old self, what would you tell her? What would you give her to give her advice for the courage to go into the impossible as you have already done?
0: Oh, wow. (laughs) Um, I'm not yet that old, right? So this is is only a little bit more than 10 years back, but um, I I guess, um, you know, I would probably say that, you know, it's always worth taking um, the difficult path if, 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 if that's uh, what my convictions lead me and that one manages more than one believes one does. So whatever comes at one actually, when one does the thing that one believes is the right thing to do, one actually gets through a lot more than one would have thought one can do. And I'm not yet old enough to say if it was worth it or not, but I know that I think I would tell my twenty year old son that I'm actually stronger and I would believe I am if I follow what I believe is the right thing to do. Uh, but yet with bit with with, with with the um you know um footnote, I'm not yet that old. <laughs> so it's not really a wisdom, it's more like um um looking back 15 years in time, you know, I would say that that's what I would tell my 20 year old self.
1: Well, Anna Aegis, Dr. Anna Aegis, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. I hope we can get together in person for one of our long uh, lingering conversations with you. I always leave it inspired and educated. And I want to thank you for being a teacher uh, to uh, to many around mm-hmm. the world and an inspiration of what courage and what integrity looks like as a scientist. Anna, thank you so much for sharing. Thanks, it. I appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic.
1: That's a wrap on another fascinating episode and conversation with my friend Anna Aegis. If you'd like to see some of the animations and diagrams and explainers, you can see that on Dr. Brian Keating, my YouTube channel. You can ask questions of all my guests. I usually post them a couple of days or a week ahead of time. You can do that on Twitter at Dr. Brian Keating or in the community tab on my YouTube channel, Dr. Brian Keating, or you can do it on my website, BrianKeating.com. I have a, a place where you can leave a, a voicemail. You can leave questions. I'm going to be doing an AMA and ask me anything based on me recently hitting 65,000 Followers on YouTube and uh, more than about that amount on audio formats such as the one you're listening to So we've got a hundred thousand people in the into the impossible universe I'm just so proud and pleased about it And I only really ask for two things uh, one is that you leave a review a rating if you can uh, And you can do that on every podcast app nowadays You can leave at least a rating of so many stars and I hope you'll leave an asterism a small constellation of five stars uh, like uh, Was recently left by Phil Galinsky uh, who left this review on Apple Podcasts? Uh, five stars, but he also left a review. So you can leave a review using Apple Podcasts exclusively. Uh, but Phil says it's one of the top science podcasts. Brian does a great job making complex scientific ideas accessible to a general audience, and he always brings out the best in his guests i'm excited to listen to his audiobook version of galileo's dialogue i just got an audible it's surprising that nobody has made this into an audiobook until now thank you phil i swear i don't know phil and having his encomium uh is really a delight especially about my audiobook you can find that on briankeating.com as well under books and i do giveaways so if you're in the usa i will send uh, a meteorite sample a villain from losing the nobel prize a piece of space schmutz and you can get that at briankeating.com slash list. Join the list. If you're in the USA, I choose 100 people at random, and I send out meteorites. And I give away copies of my audiobooks and printed books and all sorts of cool stuff. Unfortunately, I can't ship out of the US um, with my limited meager production budget. Uh, but I will do my best uh, to add value in other ways if you're outside of the country. For that, I ask you, join my mailing list, briankeating.com slash list, and join my um, my YouTube channel, Dr. Brian Keating. And that's all the asks, I really don't charge, and I'm doing it because I love it, and I love to hear reviews. So that's really one of the best ways you can get feedback. Got over 402 reviews as of today, and I'm looking to get 499, or maybe 500, let's make it a round number, by December 31st. So please do your part. There's 100,000 of you. It shouldn't be so hard to get 500 more. Sorry, 500, that would take me over 1,000, almost 1,000. But at least give me 100 of you, 1%, 1%. (laughs) 0.1%. having trouble doing math after this heady conversation with a brilliant theorist. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you will continue going into the impossible with me in future episodes. Stay tuned. We've got many exciting upcoming guests. Frank Close, author of the first biography of Peter Higgs, his book called Elusive. We have Neil Turok, one of Anna's collaborators. He's coming on the podcast. We have uh, Mati Milgram, who is the chief architect at the chief alternative to the dark matter paradigm called MON, Modified Newtonian Dynamics. That's kind of a bucket list interview that I was able to get, and you'll enjoy it. So stay tuned, leave a review, rating, wherever you can. Thanks a lot. It really helps me out.